Welcome to the What's Your Weird Story podcast. Everyone has at least one good story. And some of us have stories that are just to the left of normal. We're interested in the ones that push the boundaries of what we can perceive. Stories that defy explanations. Stories with an air of mystery. Stories we might not share. For fear of being thought of differently. But don't worry. We're all friends here. So... What's your weird story? This is Barry Johnston coming to you, ready to get the festivities started off. We've got a great show today, and with me to celebrate this wonderful time of the year are my two co-hosts, Mr. Adam Beebe and Jeff Hubbard. How are you guys? Hey, Barry. How's it going? Good. How's it going, Bear? Good, man. Good. <laughs> How's it going, Hub? <laughs> Good, man. How are you? We didn't ride here in the same car, but yeah. So, no. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas, guys! Yeah, Merry Christmas, Christmas. Happy holidays. And, and Happy Holidays, and and uh, we're excited. We got some cool stuff for everybody to listen to. Something a little bit different, yeah. break up the norm a little bit, and get into some some fun. Really, not overly Christmassy, weird Christmassy stories. Something like that. What, what we got is uh, since you know we've got our. Special correspondent, resident Bigfoot expert, and voice of the listener, Mr. Jeff Hubbard, here with us. And uh, he is going to be reading us some Christmas stories. But these are not your typical Christmas stories. They are scary stories. They're ghost stories. Yeah, and they're a lot of fun. We uh, yeah. decided to go against the norm, do something a little different. Yeah, but we're also kind of invoking uh, a tradition of the past mm -hmm. where, especially in England, in the past, ghost stories were shared at Christmas time, you know, by the fire and all of that, you know, when right. everybody's gathered around as part of the traditional right. Christmas. You know, it's even referenced in the uh, in the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, uh, with the line that there'll be scary, scary ghost stories and tells of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. That's great. Um, you know, and I, you know, I always wondered what that meant, and so I did a little deep dive into, you know, finding out about Christmas ghost stories. And yeah, there's this very long tradition that somehow uh, just, you know, kind of faded out as popular traditions or traditions do sometimes. You know, right? I think Santa Claus probably came in, became more of a uh, yeah predominant figure. You know. Um, what? The past that, century or so. That's very British too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. just, it just, like it. It's just like uh, let's just let's bring it back down to reality here. You know what I mean? Let's let's not get <laughs> yeah. too too stoked on stuff. Let's get to the the dark, <laughs> the dark shit. You know? <laughs> that's great. That's great. But yeah, no, these oh, are these are some cool stories for sure. Dave, yeah. So uh, you guys are you're, you're we're prepared. You have your uh, do you do you like wassail 
Uh, do you like was it mulled wine or eggnog? What's your preferred Christmas drink? I go I go eggnog with a little brandy. You know my my brother makes a killer eggnog with lighter fluid. Um, <laughs> that's that's that's, my, that's one of my favorite lines from uh, the movie Better Off Dead. Dude, uh, what a great movie! What a great yeah, movie, man! Exactly, that could be a Christmas movie for sure. I think so, dude. That's an anytime movie. Let's Lane, Lane, the lead character in that movie is so <laughs> great. The green Jello with the raisins, yeah. dude. Right? I want my two dollars. That's right. <laughs> I want more two dollars. <laughs> Gee, Ricky, I'm sorry your mom blew up. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't uh who is it Booger that like he uh I call him Booger from Nerd, yeah. the Revenge of the Nerds, but he snorts yeah. everything in sight. Yes, dude, Charles, I think his name the character's name is Charles Demar. And this is a funny story. Um it's kind of a funny story. I don't know if Barry remembers this or not, but we watched that movie at your house. Oh, I'm sure, man. And we were young. Yeah. And like you really enjoyed the action of of a booger yeah. uh, or Charles like snorting everything. Yeah. And so you started doing that and it really freaked me out. <laughs> and so you just kept doing it. And I'm like, dude, stop it, stop it, stop it. And you're like, yeah. So you keep doing it to egg me on. And like, it got so bad. Like you were chasing me around your house snorting. And, uh, you know, when, when our parents got back, I was just like crying to my dad, <laughs> and he's snorting everything. And of course, they don't know what the hell I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, I remember the one line is he snores. He's like, "Oh, the left side of my body is numb, or whatever." Like I can't feel the left <laughs> side of my body. And he's like waving. So that great! Around. What a great Good. movie. So yeah, uh, but go <laughs> after that. After this, go watch that yeah. for sure. But. But now stick around for some spooky Christmas stories with occasional commentary by the uh, the peanut gallery here uh, that, that I read by our good friend Jeff Hubbard. So if you would, sir, what are these weird Christmas stories? Okay, boys and girls. Looks like we have a story from Charles Dickens from ni- uh, 1837. Uh, And the title of the story is The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. A sex text? Sexton. Oh, okay. (laughs) Those are sexed. But, uh, yeah, sexton. That's those, uh, that's that nautical um, device to to, uh, navigate nautically. Stars or whatever. <laughs> Not a sex sex Not tip. a sex Different text era. Different or, era. Or, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're going to kick this off. In an old abbey town down in this part of the country, a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one because our great grandfathers implicitly believed it. There officiated as sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. It by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by the emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world. And once I had the honor of being on intimate terms with a mute 
who in private life and off-duty was as comical and jocose a little fellow as ever chirped out a devil-may-care song. Without a hitch in his memory, or drained off a good stiff glass without stopping for a breath. An intimate with a mute who was funny and could drink a lot. Yeah. That's that's what that just said. <laughs> right. Very, that was uh, one of the longest sentences I've ever read. <laughs> well, you know, hey, Dickens, literally, Dickens got paid by the word. So Ooh. even a short story he's going to get. Take, uh, that's why all of his books, those are so massive. Uh, Take the long way around. Yeah. Right. But notwithstanding these precedents to the contrary, Gabriel Grubb was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surely fellow, a morose and lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself, and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large, deep waistcoat pocket and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill humor as it was difficult to meet without feeling something the worse for. A little before twilight, one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself towards the old churchyard, for he had got a grave to finish by next morning. And feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirits, perhaps, if he went on with his work at once. As yeah. he went his... Nothing cheers oh. me up like digging a grave on Christmas <laughs> right. Eve. Yeah. <laughs> Get a, her done. I, maybe, maybe I'll do that this Christmas Eve. You know. nice. I don't nice. have anything to put in it, you know, but that's not my job. My job's just to <laughs> dig, dig that hole. Just to dig the hole. As he went his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of the blazing fires gleam through the old casements and heard the loud laugh and cheerful shouts of those who were assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for the next day's cheer and smelled the numerous savory odors consequent thereupon as they steamed up from the kitchen windows in clouds. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb. And when groups of children bounded out of the houses, tripped across the road and were met, before they could knock at the opposite door by half a dozen curly-headed little rascals who crowded round them as they flocked upstairs to spend the evening in their Christmas games, Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp as he thought of measles, scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation besides. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> Can you feel the joy? It's in the air. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Scabies. <laughs> <laughs> in this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strode, strode along, returning a short, sullen growl to the good-humored greetings of such his neighbors as now and then passed him as he turned into the dark lane which led to the churchyard. Now Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching the dark lane, because it was, generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place, into which the townspeople did not much care to go, except in broad daylight and when the sun was shining. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out some jolly song about a merry Christmas, 
in this very sanctuary, which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey and the time of the shaven-headed monks. As Gabriel worked on and the voice drew nearer, he found it proceeded from a small boy who was hurrying along to join one of the little parties in the old street and who, partly to keep himself company and partly to prepare himself for the occasion, was shouting out the song at the highest pitch of his lungs. So Gabriel waited until the boy came up and then dodged him into a corner and wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times. (laughs) (laughs) Just to teach him. To modulate his voice. <laughs> oh, God, what an ass. That's one way to do it, I guess. <laughs> and as the boy hurried away with his hand to his head, singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, set down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. But the earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no very easy matter to break it up and shovel it out. Although there was a moon, it was a very young one, and shed little light upon the grave, which was in the shadow of the church. At any other time, these obstacles would have made Gabriel Grubb very moody and miserable, but he was so well pleased with having stopped the small boy's singing that he took little heed of the scanty progress he had made and looked down into the grave. When he had finished work for the night with a grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things, Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, a few feet of cold earth, when life is done a stone at the head a stone at the feet a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat rank grass overhead and damp clay around brave lodgings for one these in holy ground ho ho <laughs> Ho, ho, laughed Gabriel Grubb as he set himself down on a flat tombstone, which was his favorite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle, a coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 repeated the voice, which sounded close behind him. Gabriel paused in some alarm, in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips and looked around. The bottom of the oldest grave about him was not more still and quiet than the churchyard in the pale moonlight. The cold, hoar frost glistened in the moonstones, in the tombstones. What? (laughs) The cold, hoar frost glistened on the tombstones. (laughs) Hold on. Is frost... Like capitalized, like a last name? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Never mind. No. Now that would be kind of cool if it was the hoar frost that showed up. Yeah. This, Glistening this... on a tombstone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
The cold hoar frost glistened on the tombstones and sparkled like rows of gems among the stone carvings of the old church. The snow lay hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth, so white and smooth a cover that it seemed as if corpses lay there, hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profound tranquility of the solemn scene. Sound itself appeared to be frozen up. All was so cold and still. It was the echoes, said Gabriel Grubb, raising the bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange, unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His suiny arms were bare, and his hands rested on his knees. On his short, round body, he wore a close covering, ornamented with small slashes. A short cloak dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks, which served the goblin in lieu of ruff or neckerchief, and his shoes curled up at the toes into long points. On his head, he wore a, brimmed, a broad-brimmed sugar loaf hat, garnished with a single feather, the hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked if he had sat on that same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. Mm. He was that's sitting perfectly. Picture. So that's well, quite a picture that yeah, he he's painted. Yeah, he is. He's painting a, a beautiful picture. He was sitting perfectly still. His tongue was put out as if in derision, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb was such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb was paralyzed and could make no reply. What do you do here on Christmas Eve, said the goblin sternly. I came to dig a grave, sir, stammered, stammered Gabriel, Gabriel Grubb. What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this, cried the goblin. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully round. Nothing was to be seen. What have you got in that bottle? said the goblin. Holland, sir! replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it of the smugglers, and he thought that perhaps his questioner might be the excise department of the goblins. Who drinks Hollands alone and in a churchyard on such a night as this, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb, exclaimed the wild voices again. The goblin leered maliciously at the terrified sexton, and then raising his voice exclaimed, 
And who, then, is our fair and lawful prize? To this query, the invisible chorus replied, in a strain that sounded like the voices of many choristers singing to the mighty swell of the old church organ, a strain that seemed born to the sexton's ears upon a wild wind, and to die away as it passed onward. But the burden of the reply was still the same. Gabriel Grub! Gabriel Grub! The goblin grinned. <laughs> little effects. Sound effects. Yeah, sound effects there. I love the fact you guys were just like, <laughs> Great. The goblin grinned a broader grin than before as he said, Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this? The sexton gr- gasped for breath. What do you think of this, Gabriel? said the goblin, kicking up his feet in the air on either side of the tombstone and looking at the turned-up points with as much complacency as if he had been contemplating the most fashionable pair of Wellingtons in all Bond Street. It's, it's very curious, sir, replied the sexton, half-dead with fright. Very curious and very pretty, but I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Work, said the goblin. What work? The grave, sir. Making the grave, stammered the sexton. Oh, the grave, eh? said the goblin. Who makes graves at a time when all other men are merry and takes pleasure in it? Again. The mysterious voices replied, Gabriel Grub! Gabriel Grub! (laughs) 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 I am afraid my aren't you, said the goblin thrusting his tongue farther into his cheek than ever, and a most astonishing tongue it was. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. Under favor, sir, replied the horror-stricken sexton. I don't think they can, sir. They don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have, replied the goblin. We know the man with the sulky face and the grim scowl that came down the street tonight, throwing his evil looks at the children and grasping his bearing spade the tighter. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. We know him. Here the goblin gave a loud, shrill laugh, which the echoes returned twentyfold, and throwing his legs up in the air, stood upon his head, or rather upon the very point of his sugar loaf hat, 
on the narrow edge of the tombstone, whence he threw a somerset with extraordinary agility right to the sexton's feet, at which he planted himself in the attitude in which tailors generally sit upon the shop board. I, I, I'm afraid I must leave you, sir, said the sexton, making a move, making an effort to move. Leave us, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb going to leave us. Ho, ho, ho. As the goblin laughed, the sexton observed for one instant a brilliant illumination within the windows of the church, as if the whole building were lighted up. It disappeared. The organ peeled forth a lively air, and whole troops of goblins, the very counterpart of the first one, poured into the churchyard and began playing at leapfrog with the tombstones, never stepping never stopping for an instant to take a breath, but overing the highest among them, one after another with the most marvelous dexterity. The first goblin was a most astonishing leaper, and none of the others could come near him. Even in the extremity of his terror, the sexton could not help observing that while his friends were content to leap over the common-sized gravestones, the first one took to the family vaults, iron railings and all, with as much ease as if they had been so many street posts. At last the game reached to a most exciting pitch. The organ played quicker and quicker, and the goblins leapt, leapt faster and faster, coiling themselves up, rolling head over heels upon the ground and bounding over the tombstones like footballs. The sexton's brain whirled with the rapidity of the motion he beheld, and his legs reeled beneath him as the spirits flew before his eyes. When the goblin king, suddenly dart darting towards him, laid his hand upon his collar and sank him through the earth. When Gabriel Grubb had had time to fetch his breath, which the rapidity of his descent had for the moment taken away, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern, surrounded on all sides by crowds of goblins, ugly and grim. In the center of the room, and on elevated seat, was stationed his friend of the churchyard, and close behind him stood Gabriel Grubb himself, without power of motion. Cold tonight, said the king of goblins. Goblins, very cold. And a glass of something warm here. At this command, half a dozen officious goblins with a perpetual smile upon their faces, whom Gabriel Grubb imagined to be courtiers on that account, hastily disappeared and presently returned with a goblet of liquid fire, which they presented to the king. That wild turkey? Uh, is that what these? Uh... Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. I think that is. That's the Could high proof. Yeah, definitely. It's white lightning or uh, something like that. Ah, cried the goblin, whose cheeks and throat were transparent as he tossed down the flame. This warms one indeed. Bring a bumper of the same for Mr. Grubb. It was in vain for the unfortunate sexton to protest that he was not in the habit of taking anything warm at night. 
One of the goblins held him, while another poured the blazing liquid down his throat. Consent, whole- goblins. Consent. <laughs> Consent. <laughs> I have problems with this, but... <laughs> right. Ahead. The whole assembly screeched with laughter as he coughed and choked and wiped away the tears and gushed plentily, that gushed plentily from his eyes after swallowing the burning drought. And now, said the king, fantastically poking, poking the taper corner of his sugar loaf hat into the sexton's eye and thereby occasioning him with the most exquisite pain. And now, show the man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our great storehouse. Oh, so he's going to show them all their, the goblin selfies from their vacation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a slideshow. Gob- oh, yeah, from go- either that or they're just going to project it, the Goblin King's Instagram uh, <laughs> up there. <laughs> At Goblin King UK one. <laughs> <laughs> As the goblin said this, a thick cloud which obscured the remoter end of the cavern rolled gradually away and disclosed, apparently at a great distance, a small and scantily furnished but neat and clean apartment. A crowd of little children were gathered round a bright fire, clinging to their mother's gown and gamboling around her chair. The mother occasionally rose and drew aside the window curtain as if to look for some expected object. A frugal meal was readily spread upon the table, and an elbow chair was placed near the fire. A knock was heard at the door. The mother opened it, and the children crowded around her and clapped their hands for joy as their father entered. He was wet and weary and shook the snow from his garments as the children crowded round him. And seizing his cloak, hat, stick, and gloves with busy zeal, ran with them from room to room. Then as he sat down to his meal before the fire, the children climbed about his knee, and the mother sat by his side, and all seemed happy and comforted. But a change came upon the view, almost imperceptibly. The scene was altered to a small bedroom where the fairest and youngest child lay dying. Roses had fled from his cheek and the light from his eye. And even as the sexton looked upon him with an interest he had never felt or known before, he died. His young brothers and sisters crowded round his little bed and seized his tiny hand so cold and heavy, but they shrank back from its touch and looked with awe on his infant face. For calm and tranquil as it was, and sleeping in rest and peace as the beautiful child seemed to be, they saw that he was dead, and they knew that he was an angel looking down upon and blessing them from a bright and happy heaven. Again the light cloud passed across the picture, and again the subject changed. The father and mother were old and helpless now and the number of those about them was diminished by more than half. But content and cheerfulness sat on every face and beamed in every eye as they crowded round the fireside and told and listened to old stories of earlier and bygone days. Slowly and peacefully, the father sank into the grave, 
and soon after, the sharer of all his cares and troubles followed him to a place of rest. The few who yet survived him kneeled by their tomb and watered the green turf which covered it with their tears, then rose and turned away, sadly and mournfully, but not with bitter cries or despairing lamentations, for they knew that they should one day meet again, and once more they mixed with the busy world and their content and cheerful, 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 cheerfulness were restored. The clouds settled upon the picture and concealed it from the sexton's view. What do you think of that? said the goblin, turning his large face towards Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel murmured out something with Gabriel murmured out something about its being very pretty and looked somewhat ashamed as the goblin bent his fiery eyes upon him. You miserable man, said the goblin in a tone of excessive contempt. You. He appeared disposed to add more, but indignation choked his utterance. So he lifted up one of his very pliable legs and flourishing it above his head a little to ensure his aim, administered a good sound kick to Gabriel Grubb. Immediately after which, all the goblins in waiting crowded round the wretch sexton and kicked him without mercy, according to the established invariable custom of courtiers upon the earth, who kick whom royalty kicks and hug whom royalty hugs. So he just got jumped by a, a <laughs> shit ton of goblins. Yeah. He got his ass whooped. Yeah, well, you know, karma, because uh, he did get, he did beat, you know, hit that little kid yeah, on the yeah, head. True. So he had it coming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and they're not done with him yet. Oh, show him some more," said the king of goblins. At these words, the cloud was dispelled, and a rich and beautiful landscape was disclosed to view. There is just such another to this day within half a mile of the old abbey town. The sun shone from out the clear blue sky. The water sparkled beneath his rays, and the trees looked greener and the flowers more gay beneath its cheering influence. The water rippled on with pleasant sound. The trees rustled in the light wind that murmured among their leaves. The birds sang upon the boughs, and the lark carolled on her high welcome in the morning. Yes, it was morning, the bright, balmy morning of summer, the minutest leaf, the smallest blade of grass was instinct with life. The ant crept forth to her daily toil, the butterfly fluttered and basked in the warm rays of the sun. Myriads of insects spread their transparent wings and reveled in their brief but happy existence. Man walked forth elated with the scene, and all was brightness and splendor. You, a miserable man, said the king of goblins, in a more contemptuous tone than before. And again the king of goblins gave his leg a flourish. Again it descended upon the shoulders of the sexton, and again the attendant goblins imitated the example of their chief. Whooped his ass again. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) Many a time the cloud went and came, and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb, who, although his shoulders smarted smarted with pain from the frequent applications of the goblin's feet thereunto, looked on with an interest that none could diminish. He saw that men who worked hard and earned their scanty bread with lives of labor were cheerful and happy, and that to the most ignorant, the sweet face of nature was a never-failing source of cheerfulness and joy. He saw those who had been delicately nurtured and tenderly brought up, cheerful under privations and superior to suffering. That would have crushed many a rougher grain, because they bore within their own bosoms the materials of happiness, contentment, and peace. He saw that women, the tenderest and most fragile of all hearts, of all God's creatures, were the often superior, were the oftenest superior to sorrow, adversity, and distress. And he saw that it was because they bore in their own hearts an inexhaustible wellspring of affection and devotion. Above all, he saw that men like himself, who snarled at the mirth and cheerfulness of others, were the foulest weeds in the fair surface of the earth. And setting all the good of the world against evil, he came to the conclusion that it was a very decent and respectable sort of world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud which had closed over the last picture seemed to settle on his senses and lull him to repose. One by one, the goblins faded from his sight, and as the last one disappeared, he sank to sleep. The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke and found himself lying at full length on the flat gravestone in the churchyard, with the wicker bottle lying empty on his side, and his coat, spade, and lantern all well whitened by last night's frost, scattered on the ground. The stone on which he had first seen the goblin seated stood bolt upright before him, and the grave at which he had worked the night before was not far off. At first he began to doubt the reality of his adventures, but the acute pain in his shoulders when he attempted to rise assured him that the kicking of the goblins was certainly not ideal. He was staggered again by observing no traces of footsteps in the snow on which the goblins had played at leapfrog with the gravestones. But he speedily accounted for this circumstance when he remembered that being spirits, they would leave no visible impression behind them. Mm, So Gabriel Grubb got to his feet as well as he could for the pain in his back and brushing the frost off his coat, put it on and turned his face towards the town. But he was an altered man, and he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at and his reformation disbelieved. He hesitated for a few moments and then turned away to wander where he might and seek his bread elsewhere. The lantern, the spade, and the wicker bottle were found that day in the churchyard. There were a great many speculations about the sexton's fate at first, but it was speedily determined that he had been carried away by the goblins, and there, 
and there were not wanting some very credible witnesses who had distinctly seen him whisk through the air on the back of a chestnut horse blind of one eye with the hindquarters of a lion and the tail of a bear. At length, all this was devoutly believed, and the new sexton used to exhibit to the curious for a trifling emolument a good-sized piece of the church weathercock which had been accidentally kicked off by the aforesaid horse in his aerial flight and picked up by himself in the churchyard a year or two afterwards. Unfortunately, these stories were somewhat disturbed by the unlooked-for reappearance of Gabriel Grubb himself some ten years afterwards, a ragged, contented, rheumatic old man. He told his story to the clergyman and also to the mayor, and in course of time it began to be received as a matter of history, in which form it has continued down to this very day. The believers in the weathercock tale have misplaced their confidence once, were not easily prevailed upon to part with it again, so they looked as wise as they could, shrugged their shoulders, touched their foreheads, and murmured something about Gabriel Grubb, Grubb having drunk all the Hollands and then fallen asleep on that flat tombstone, and they affected to explain what he supposed he had witnessed in the goblin's cavern by saying that he had seen the world and grown wiser. But this opinion was by no means a popular one at any time, gradually died off, and be the matter how it may, as Gabriel Grubb was afflicted with rheumatism to the end of his days. This story has at least one moral, if not to teach no better one, and that is that if a man turns sulky and drink himself at Christmas time, he may make up his mind to be not a bit the better for it. Let the spirits never be so good, or let them even or let them be even as many degrees beyond proof as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the goblin's cavern. That is the story. Yeah. That's the story of my life right there. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. <laughs> well, first off, uh, the sextant in this particular use, I had to look at, is not the navigation, dip, but it is a uh, old term for the uh, church caretaker. And uh, so he's the, basically like the custodian of the church, and he lived on the church uh, area. So he was a miserable sextant at that. Yes, yes. Right. But I... I mean, one of the first things that really pops into mind to me is how much this story, um, especially after he's taken down into the, the goblin land um, and the miserable, I mean, how much of, of this is like um, an early draft of A Christmas Carol that uh, Dickens yeah. wrote right. about? Uh, and this was a little bit before, that's several, a few years before that's that. What, that's what I thought, too. That narrative is so. is similar. Mm -hmm. He likes that yeah. kind of an idea. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and, uh, I think it it's good. You know, it's um um a good a good reminder of you know don't be too full of yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
and look for you know don't be don't wallow in your misery you know right. look for joy especially you know at christmas time you know the right. holidays right you know it should be spent with family right and, uh you know when you can obviously right. this year is different but those or at least those people that you love and you enjoy their company you know right. and don't just be uh, miserable around goblins because they'll just kick your ass. Absolutely, right. absolutely. So, and uh, you know that goblin firewater. I mean, you know that obviously. I would imagine that at least dulled some of the pain. Right. Um, you know that yeah. uh, that he got there, but uh, I don't know. At the end of the day, you're still getting your ass kicked. You know, by goblins. Yeah, so. that's, that's true. true. End of the day. I like the part where he woke up and he's covered in frost. Um, that happened to a roommate of mine in uh, in college um, uh, when uh, we had a party. Uh, we were no, our house uh, was called the Soccer Moms House because there was a band that used to live there called the Soccer Moms, uh-huh. and uh, so everybody's called it the Soccer Moms House. And uh, even after they. Uh, Ended being a band. It was still called the Soccer Mom's House. And after I moved in, I still, you know, we still called it the Soccer Mom's House for quite a while. But anyway, um, my friend slash roommate Seth, we uh, we had this huge party, and you know, they were just wild, and tons of people sh- show up, and we get like you know, three or four kegs of PBR, super cheap, and uh, we just you know put them out in the back, and it was like in the fall. You know, towards the end of the semester, and it was cool. And uh, he woke up in the morning, and he was up against our one of our fences in the backyard. He had covered himself himself with leaves <laughs> as a makeshift blanket, but he oh, also God. had been covered in frost. <laughs> <laughs> Survivor man style. Yeah, dude. And what was what was even funnier is that he probably had like ten feet to go to get to his inside the house to his room to his bed. Ten but, feet. Uh, oh, it was at feet. his own house. Yeah, at our house. <laughs> our place. Jesus. Ten feet can be ten miles sometimes. You know. Yeah, that's true. It's <laughs> a good true. point. It's a damn good point. You know, some people I think. Uh, just enjoy that you know we we've got a friend kane paul who he used to wear this green coat all the time and it didn't matter if it was winter or summertime it seemed like he was always wearing this thing but he would drink and uh, you know at some point you'd be like where's where's kane paul and he's out laying in the yard he he liked that shit <laughs> he'd just do it he, he he wanted to be one with the earth Right. That's funny. <laughs> well, I think when you're uh, that age too, the ability to stop drinking when it's appropriate is non-existent. I know I was that. I was like that. I would just drink till I'm blackout drunk. You know. Yeah. Didn't have yeah. any any idea of what it was like to moderately drink. So, um, thank God. Some some of us learn and some of us don't learn. And if you don't learn, you're going to get a hard lesson, which is kind of what this story is about. You know, you're going to get your ass kicked if you don't pull your head out of your ass. You know. Yep. Yep. All right. And that is <laughs> Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas message. Merry Christmas. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh.
Hey, that's a nice t-shirt you got on there. Oh, thanks, dude. It's brand new. Do you like that? It's one of the official What's Your Weird Story t-shirts. Where'd you get that? It's funny that you ask. I just got it off the brand new Spreadshirt.com site for the What's Your Weird Story podcast. There's no www. You just go straight to shop.spreadshirt.com backslash what's without the apostrophe W-H-A-T-S hyphen Y-E dash w-e-i-r-d dash s-t-o-r-y and that'll take you right there i mean you can never own enough clothing well that's true barry there's t-shirts for the ladies because you know they're cut differently there's hoodies which are really cool there's two different kinds of hoodies and there's also tote bags so you can tote your stuff that's so cool man so if you guys go out to spreadshirt.com what's your weird story currently there are two designs but there will be more going up very soon so just keep your eyes out for that and if you decide to get one of our shirts tag yourself on instagram to ours or facebook show your love show us what you got let's see your true colors no said jackson with a shy little smile i'm sorry i won't play hide and seek it was christmas eve and there were 14 of us in the house we had had a good dinner and we were all in the mood for fun and games all that is except jackson that little bastard When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there were loud shouts of agreement. Jackson's refusal was the only one. It was not like Jackson to refuse to play a game. Aren't you feeling well? Someone asked. I'm perfectly all right, thank you, he said. But, he added with a smile that softened his refusal, but did not change it, I'm still not playing hide-and-seek. Why not? asked someone. He hesitated for a moment before replying, I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped and landed at the bottom of the stairs. Damn. She broke she broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious, Miss Fernley said. How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said. But I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment. Then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide and seek. The name comes from, it's me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide and seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. All right. Sounds fun so far. Yeah. Yeah. 
You turn out the lights, and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee. But of course, they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers, Smee. And they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer. And he will join the first two. Mm. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. Mm. Wow. It sounds a it sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there? The girl who broke? No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us playing the game, and there were only 12 people in the house. And I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me. But I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to play, I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. Mm. His words did not make sense at all. I would. I, I have to agree. It's... <laughs> Tim Boots was the kindest man in the world. Good old Tim. <laughs> he smiled at us all. <laughs> this sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson. You can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson. And here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived. There were... All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. Now, I thought... This is Jackson speaking? I thought Jackson was like a little kid. This Yeah, that's what they said. Well, you know... uh, this is an old story, so Jackson actually probably could have had a job when he was like eight years old. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. I, you know, I don't know uh, what is happening here. I don't know if this is going to come together <laughs> or what. Let's just let's let's, let's have faith. Uh, we'll have faith. Yeah, yeah. let's let's go yes. on here. 
Okay, uh, so I was the last to arrive, and I was the only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sankson introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go into dinner. This is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of the tall, dark-haired, handsome girl whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I'm always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by her name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at the table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were 12 of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their 17-year-old son, Reggie, was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all. If you're going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. Mm. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago, before we came here. There was a party, and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. Mm. She was dead when they picked her up. No. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went rounding, went round making sure all the lights were off, except the ones in the servants' rooms and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper, 11 of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up, then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw it was a blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee! Smee! 
After a while, the noise died down, and I guess that someone found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer. So Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid the last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, looked up at the staircase and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as 12, then he looked puzzled. There are 13 people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course there were 12 of us, Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted 13 twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't. But I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only 12 of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were 12 people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something horrible has happened. We went to the breakfast room. What's the matter, I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep closed cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought but that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but I suddenly had a strange cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and there was nobody there. Now, I'm sure I touched a hand, 
And nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagine that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. You know, that's definitely a uh, an early... 20th century English way of doing it. Everybody's having a terrible time, <laughs> and, but everybody's too polite to say, you know, this this we do, this game sucks. We don't want to play anymore, yeah. or you know, whatever. There, you know, because now definitely you get five minutes into the first game, you got to have some teenagers yeah. saying this game's stupid. This game sucks, and, yeah. and then yeah. they're gonna walk away and find you know get on their phone and whatever you know find a <laughs> PlayStation. So All the same. I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first, I stayed with the others, but for several minutes, no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha, I thought, I've caught me. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. It was dark. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside Snoop me, the whisper dog <laughs> And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came, 
Brenda Ford. Oh. Brenda Ford. Whoa. Whoa. Can we change I that did. to Brandon Forbes? <laughs> I wish we could. We should change that to Brandon Forbes. Yeah. Start okay. that over and send the girl, okay. little girl's name is Brandon Forbes. Head cheese. Okay. And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came Brandon Forbes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was sitting beside me on the window, on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the persons or persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she is one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me, and she is using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her, but now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. So basically, of- so basically Jackson here is telling everybody that he kind of gets turned on by, uh, you know, handsome Pale women who have the uh, <laughs> always look like they're uh, they have the the resting bitch face. I guess that's right. What, you know that's that's a the RBF the RBF <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah RBF. Yeah. That's a lot of- for an eight year old. <laughs> I mean, really, when you think that about is it, so <laughs> that's a developed a very specific uh, type for a young a little guy. Uh, but they- I'm still <laughs> kind of, you know, kind of weirded out because, like, you know, he had a he did have a job. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. And, and the 17 year old was the youngest one. I don't know. He's yeah, got it. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't know. He's well, got a job. Go and... A job and an affinity for women already at the yeah. age of eight. This is weird. Cold is women. Weird. He must have yeah. a stern mother. Oh, right. God. Right. <laughs> Mommy issues. Yeah. Yeah. So the feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. Oh, oh, little Jackson's becoming a man. (laughs) I remembered touching her arm, and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. 
somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side, and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee, whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes. Can we change that to Dusty Jackson? (laughs) We should change that. We're just going to make all these people (laughs) name people we grew up with. That sounds good. There you go. That's our Christmas present to our hometown (laughs) folk. It's Dusty Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. (laughs) Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch at a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, isn't it against the rules to talk? Never mind. Dusty will break the rules. Do you know, Dusty, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice, quiet game, all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player. Somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better Mrs. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Young Reggie yeah. Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> Reggie this is Jackson. an old story, I guess, yeah. That is an old story. Hello, hello, is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean? I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once. Then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody here, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman in a trembling voice. And I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain 
on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and soon he told me the reason. Dusty, he said. I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business. But please don't make love to her in my house during a game. Okay. <laughs> this guy is not eight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It must be a typo. Weird, there's a typo. Some kind of weird gear. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe there's a one in front of that eight. Okay. I don't know. Let's go back and check. Let's this is go back in the day, you know. <laughs> well, People they, grew up a lot faster. That's back true. Then. Life expectancy was about so, forty. I, 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 uh, you know, with uh, <laughs> Reggie coming right out there and saying it too, man. I mean, it's like, hey, if you're if you're not if you're not screwing by the time you're eight, man, you're you're halfway to the right. grave. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. missing out. Back then, yeah, for sure, man. You know, he's had a, he's got a job. You know, yeah, yeah. he's a file clerk. Yeah, at a big yeah, yeah. Insurance company. Yeah. You know, yeah, and uh, yeah, got a. You know, I mean, he does. He has a driver. Not obviously to not old enough to drive, but right. you know, he has a a man to drive him around. So yeah, wow. Yeah. Way to go, Dusty. I mean, yeah. you know, smoking cigarettes and yeah. drinking rolling rusty his nails, own. rolling his own, and yeah, uh, yeah. drinking uh, and and never washing. You yeah. know, once a week yeah. maybe. Because, again, it's back in the days. So, I love a know. rusty nail drink. H- have you had a rusty nail? Oh fuck, bro. Yeah, it's like one of my Jesus Christ. It, that is. Let me tell you something. If you that's need... a man's fucking drink. Oh yeah, buddy. If if you if you got a cold coming on, you got a scratchy throat. Drink a rusty nail. That'll get you going, dude. You, you know, I, I think I had heard the term rusty nail before, but I was watching Better Call Saul. Yeah. And, you know, Saul had a particularly rough fucking day, and he came home, and he grabbed a bottle of Macallan tin yep. and a bottle of Drambuie, yeah, and buddy. he fucking mixed that shit together yeah. on ice. And I was like, man, there's got to be a name for that shit. So I looked it up. Yeah, and sure enough, it was a fucking rusty nail. And yeah. so I decided the next time uh, <laughs> I felt like having a drink, I was gonna fucking mix that shit. Up. Yeah, yeah. What'd you think? Intense, dude. Oh, that it's is a that's a fifties, nineteen fifties. Yeah, hardworking man's. Yeah, fucking. Yeah, just put yeah. hair on your. Yeah, chest you need to. You need. You got to. You, you're doing some damage. I, I bet it is. Um, so I used to bartend, and that I had a customer that would come in and drink those. And, no shit. Yeah, and um, not being a, a guy, a Scotch guy at that time, um, you know, I was like, I was real hesitant to try it. But I, I was wasn't feeling well, and I had one because I was told that it'll get you straightened out. Because Drambuie, it's a it's a real thick uh, liqueur. It's made with right. honey. it's honey. It's kind of like a it's kind of like mead. I mean, really, but it's thick. It's like a thick. It's yeah. a it's a honey liqueur is what it is. And so you mm. you uh, you mix um, two. What is it? Two and a half ounces of uh, of drambuie or of uh, scotch, and then top it with a little bit of drambuie. And uh, damn, that's yeah. a man's drink. Oh man, you gotta. 
I, I really like it though. I really do. I, I love the. Uh, I just love everything about it. It does have that old time, you know, that old guy, you know, that would have been something that my grandfather would have drank. Yeah. Yeah. Good shit. Parked up. It's a good starter drink. Yeah. Start your night off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Did I ever tell you guys about the, uh, the drink that I came up with back in my bar days? Uh Uh-uh. No. It's called the stomach pump. And, uh, it is. It's. Just, it's. It sounds a lot worse than what it actually is. Okay. But it will get you. Okay. Um, so we all know um, the uh, what is it? The gorilla fart. I think that's one of those. Okay. Uh, a mixed drink. It's a shot. Sure. And yeah. that's Jaeger and um, wild turkey. Oh Ooh. fuck! Oh, right. God. Right. So so I thought, what can we make that's you know, one step beyond yeah. the, the, this. And uh, so we came up with, I came up with the uh, Jaeger, shot of Jaeger, the shot of wild turkey, and then just to round it all out would uh, be a shot of uh, 151. Oh. And Damn. surprisingly, all that mixed together, not that bad, but it will hit you. And oh. if you drink too many of them, then that. you will you will reboot your system. Uh, Man, you will do I, I imagine a Jägermeister <laughs> is just one of those that I just can't. It's just, uh, I think I maybe had too much of it or something. It just, yeah, yeah. I could drink Easily, a Jäger bomb, know. but a Jäger, straight Jäger is it's like, it's just like, you know, cough medicine, you know, to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've never had the real shit. Have you guys ever had the real shit from, from Europe with opiate in it? No, you're oh. thinking of absinthe, aren't you? No, I think it's the uh, the real Jägermeister also has opium in it. Damn. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Now that sounds like something I could get behind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's like it's a medicinal thing, right? Oh, that really? we turned yeah. into, we bastardized it somehow. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, it might, it sounds cool. It maybe, maybe at one point it did, but yeah, definitely absinthe had the has that. So, yeah, I've never had absinthe the, either. Yeah, I never did either. Not the at least certainly not the real stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you just can't get that right. in the states; it's illegal. Um, but yeah, the psychotropic um, things that happen when you put in that real wormwood. Yeah, dude. Yeah, uh, I'm all about it. I'd love to try it for right. sure, but. Don't think chasing the green fairy. That's what they used to call it. Yeah, right. Yeah, wild. So yeah, rusty nail, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Did you know we? uh, Another side. Since eventually we'll get back to the story, but this is really what people are tuning in for. Um, (laughs) Do you remember? Do you remember uh, the the janitor at our school, Anita Nail? (laughs) Well. We had a janitor. Her name was legitimately I, Anita Nail, I, and she had a son named Rusty Nail. And I'm nah, not making this up. I'm are you ser- are you he serious? Was probably he was probably Brooks' age, or maybe a little even older than that. Okay, but I huh. definitely, yeah, yeah. Wow, I remember that because it was like one of those things that, like, you know, you always hear teachers saying, you know, they've had a kid that was named like. Lamangelo and Orangelo, right, and, or something weird, you know, yeah. having a funny name, yeah, a clever name or whatever, and Jack uh, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Mike Hunt, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't know that. I thought that I but thought yeah. you were kidding. Really? No, no, no. no. Wow. As far as I Damn. As far as I know, as far as I remember, there we had Anita Nail. Right. And, of course, Nail was her married name. So, I mean, she had to have a good sense of humor. Oh, of course. Get married with the name Anita. Yeah. And, you know, Nail. And then, um, and then of course, you know, you have to, you basically have to name your kid Rusty. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's no, true. No kidding. That's also. No, that's true. Yeah, if your last name's Nail, you got to go Rusty. Yeah. You got to. Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> Hang. But, you hang, know. Yeah. <laughs> all right oh, so back shit. to dusty jackson's adventure okay okay i'm just Making gonna sweet love to <laughs> to mrs gorman yes miss gorman mrs gorman okay it's not at the house uh dusty he said i suppose you are in love with mrs gorman that's your business but please don't make to love to her in my house during a game you kept everyone waiting it was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there, somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Forbes. Forbes, yes. Miss Brendan. Brandon Forbes. <laughs> <laughs> she whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Sangston stared at me. Miss who? He breathed. Brandon Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony. Sorry. Look here, Dusty, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brandon Forbes is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. Dum-dum-dum. The end. <laughs> wow, wow man. man. That was good. Man, that, that had was some, fun. That had some twists and turns. Good. Okay. Uh, I want to review this real quick. Okay. Uh, that was... Uh, who's Who was the writer of that? Should okay, this was beginning. written by A.M. Burridge. Yep. And what? A.M. Birch. You got a year on uh, when it came out or anything? Uh, no, we could probably we could probably look that up. I uh, think I think I saw that it was 1931. 1931. Yeah, I think that's what I saw. But well, that's what we'll say. Wow, it's a public domain, so God. really we don't have to be completely accurate about anything. Cause Isn't we're, that insane? That's almost a hundred years old, man. That is crazy, man. Who knew? I mean, gosh, that means that means Hedgie's Brandon Forbes is ancient. Yeah, still looks great though, doesn't immortal. he? Immortal, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> sharp as a tack too. Yeah, that's yeah. true. If man. only he still had that mullet. True. That was a beautiful mullet. You can always bring it, it back, you know. Yeah. And I look at kids that grow mullets, mullets these days, and I'm like. Are they do the? Is this supposed to be ironic, or is this like they really like think this is a great looking haircut? Because <laughs> look, look, in in twenty years, I they're going to look about all those people. I mean, because they're going to look back in twenty years and, and forget the irony, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, no, I don't yeah. think they think it's ironic. I think they think it's cool. Yeah. I mean, they don't. I don't think they realize that it could even be ironic or even be, you know, whatever right. it was. Yeah. But like, look at them, like all the kids with the uh, 
the perm on top. They've got the girl at the top, and it's all permed. Yeah, and it looks like they're wearing some kind of like <clears throat> like a poodle beret or yeah, something. You know, that's that's true. That's a very popular look. Yeah, I yeah. see that a lot. Yeah, it's and I'm great. Ooh, it's bad. That's not going to age well. No, it's that's not. not gonna age it's well. not going to age well at all. We were very fortunate that um, we kind of skated through some of the worst haircut eras. True. You know, true. I mean, now Barry, you had the Bosworth at one point. I did, man. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. the boss was cool though. I mean, you had that. <laughs> yeah. There were plenty of guys rocking that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not I was not one of them. My dad was sensible enough to uh, not allow us to get any kind of, or at least me, to get any kind of ridiculous haircuts. My brother had the perm, uh, and the uh, I think he might have had the uh, little bit of a perm mullet as well somewhere in middle school, but uh, but I never did have anything. The weight line, you remember those? You had one. The part with the weight line before you started growing your hair out. Me? Are you talking about me? Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did do that. Yeah. I did that shit. That was bad. Classic weight line. Barry had the weight line. Uh, Barry had the weight line as well. Uh, before, I guess, after the Bosworth. Yeah. Um, you had the weight line because that was the kind of uh, end thing there for. Yeah, and then I so. went to the. Um, then I went to the grunge cut, which was the right. shaved underneath, and everything else is long. You know, mm-hmm. I did that. Yeah, I had that. I had that for a while too. Yeah. Yeah. I did the. Uh, I did the. I tried to grow my hair out, but it got real wavy. And then at that same time, I dyed it blue, and uh, that was in college. It was in my early years of college, and um, none of my friends there told me that I had clown hair. Um, <laughs> Because I mean, that's what it looked like. It got pooped up <laughs> yeah, around you... <laughs> all, all the things that they were <laughs> comment on. Well, it's not the worst possible. It was the th- this is the thing that you really need to understand. You were experimenting. You, have clown hair, you were experimenting, but, uh, man. They they were trying to let you f- let your flag f- fly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, we were. They were all chasing after <laughs> girls and everything. They were all on whatever. drugs and shit. So well, they, yeah, they true. Did. true enough. Really, yeah. True enough. They probably didn't realize my hair was there. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? You had blue hair for a while? <laughs> no, I remember that, buddy. And I remember right after you did that, we went back to Kingfisher and uh, we went to a Friday night football game. And uh, I was like, man, I don't know if I need to be running around with this dude <laughs> with this blue hair. But I think everybody liked it. That's funny. Well, then I realized how awful it was long because it just wouldn't look good long. Yeah. You know, yeah, of course. I tried to grow it out long. And it just wasn't going to cut it. So I cut it and uh, had a kind of more normal. Yeah. You got a while there again. Right. So. You got to see, but it's still blue. Got to see your weakness. You know what I mean. Look at the reality of it. Cut your losses, so to speak. Yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Dave Schrader from the Holzer Files on Travel Channel. You're listening to What's Your Weird Story. 
Hey everybody, you're listening to the What Your Weird Story podcast. You probably knew that already because you're listening or downloaded to the episode off of your iTunes or your Spotify or whatever place you get your podcast from. We want to thank you for listening. We also want to remind you to like us, follow us, subscribe to us, make sure that you get your new podcast episode every week. We'd also like to ask you to rate and review so that we can grow our audience and we can have more friends, we can have more stories. So thanks for listening to What's Your Weird Story. Thanks again, Hub, for coming by Thank and, you. Uh, you know, sharing those beautiful, just uplifting uh, stories of Christmas. And, right. And your, your golden pipes singing to us. That was one. And, uh, <laughs> I was not expecting that. That's great. So. Yeah, I really wasn't expecting that either. That showed up, and I was like, wow. Move. I don't know if this is a poem or a song. Fucking move. So, uh, Just moved by the spirit, man. Right, right. Right. No, it, the pleasure's all mine, guys. That was, that was great. Some stories I'd never heard before, and, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about that uh christmas tradition with ghost stories so it was a lot of fun yeah i was glad glad to be here yeah so everybody now you need to uh with your young children instead of telling them about santa coming and visiting and stuff tell them the most horrible frightening stories you can muster <laughs> the night before christmas yeah. just before so you know hey if they're not you know because we know kids aren't going to try to sleep you know, they're not going to be able to sleep if Santa's coming. But if you scare the shit out of them, they're going to be staying in their beds cowering. That's so really, right. it's a win-win. If they right? know, if Am they, right, if Aaron? they, yeah, if they know the goblins are coming, they're going to, they're going to keep under the blanket. I guarantee you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's my Christmas gift. That's right. That's right. That's true. Right. That's right. <laughs> well, Merry Christmas to everybody, man. Yes. Thanks. Happy yeah. holidays. And, uh, Thanks for listening throughout this crazy year. We hope that your Christmas 2020, if you uh, if you do celebrate, we hope your Christmas 2020 is uh, very merry and bright and uh, full of Christmas uh, joy and uh, uh, killer eggnog made with lighter fluid. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week with the uh, first... The last episode of the year, but the first part of our uh, of a two part weird news roundup for 2020. Uh, plus, no COVID stories. Had enough of those for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again, Jeff, for joining us. Merry Christmas, and tell your family Merry Christmas, Barry. Thank you for always being there. You too. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, man. Merry yeah. Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas. And, and God bless us, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until next week, be merry. Be weird. As always, if you have a weird story, we want to hear it. If you have a lot of them, we want to hear them all. We can't do this podcast without your invaluable contributions. Whether it's sharing your stories, listening, rating, and spreading the word about the podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be safe. Be weird. The stories presented on the What's Your Weird Story podcast 
are, to our knowledge, true experiences that our guests have had. We can't take the time to research all claims made, and besides, it's just not as fun.